0: all while saving businesses billions. That's wonder made possible. Learn more at evernorth.com wonder. This episode is brought to you by Shopify. Whether you're selling a little or a lot, Shopify helps you do your thing, however you cha-ching. From the launch your online shop stage, all the way to the we just hit a million orders stage. No matter what stage you're in, Shopify's there to help you grow. Sign up
1: for a $1 per month trial period at shopify.com slash specialoffer, all lowercase. That's shopify.com slash specialoffer.
0: Welcome to the New Books Network. Hello, everyone. Welcome to The Academic Life. I'm your host, Dr. Christina Gessler. And today we are joined by Michelle Dowd, who will be sharing about her new book, Forager. Field Notes for Surviving a Family Cult. Welcome to the show, Michelle.
1: Thank you, Christina. I'm so happy to be here.
0: I am so glad that you're here and we get to hear about this book. Uh, It's a book with many layers and I'm excited to hear what layers you want to tease out with us here today. Before we dive into that, will you please tell us about yourself?
1: My name is Michelle Dowd, and I have been a professor for many years, currently a professor of journalism and before that a professor of English. Currently, I think I identify more as a writer, not only of this book, but I'm doing a lot of I've been um, writing essays for magazines and a lot more popular culture than I used to do as a straight-up academic. I still am an academic, but it's really interesting to be going back and forth between these two voices.
0: There are threads in the book that left me curious about how you found your way to being a writer. There's um, Aunt Geraldine who encourages you. There's a doctor who suggests that you start writing down conversations. There's letters that um, you write that ultimately lead to your past away from your family and the cult. How did this relationship with writing help you develop yourself and also cause some worries about danger?
1: It's a wonderful question. I feel that this book is about foraging for words, foraging for language, foraging for the ability to express what is happening around me as a young child. While I was growing up, there was an understanding, and it was often spoken, that followers, not just children, but followers didn't have the right to an opinion. I was never asked my opinion. Um, When we asked questions, those were shut down, often penalized, or we received discipline for asking questions. So as I was growing up, I had a lot of questions. And when I couldn't get people around me to answer them, I learned to write them down. And that was a wonderful vehicle for me to start to develop a dialogue with myself. And then eventually when I found people like Aunt Geraldine, which was a little hit and miss, you know, how often she was willing to talk to me, but when I found people who were on the outside or inside the group, I had questions already developed and I had language that enabled me to have conversations that could help me take a step further to understanding my role in a community that I see now was doing a lot of harm. At the time, I didn't understand that it was doing harm. I only understood that I was unable to comply with many of the rules and strictures that were imposed, not only upon me, but upon others. So, the writing aspect, it is something I was uncomfortable saying just as I was uncomfortable using the word cult. I was uncomfortable of thinking about myself as a writer, but looking back, I can see that I was always a writer. From the first time anyone put words on paper in front of me, I, got, I had the opportunity to go to public school for only three years of my childhood, and that was kindergarten through second grade, so between the ages of five and seven, I went to school, and I learned to write during that period of time and I continued to be self-taught after that. And I think writing was how I learned to think because I wasn't allowed to speak my thoughts.
0: You had a Bible that you were allowed to read but it burned in a in a vehicle fire. And not long after that you got a copy of the Sears catalog. I don't know if they make that anymore, but the copy that you got was 1,500 pages long and it was full of all kinds of words that you hadn't seen anywhere else. Can you take us back to the joy and discovery you found in pouring through the Sears catalog and maybe how that helped you on your path as a writer? It makes me smile just thinking
1: about it. I do have the actual Sears catalog, um, the original. and. I don't think they make them anymore. That's a great question. But you can sometimes find Old Sears Catalog for some of our younger listeners. It was kind of like Amazon um, <laughs> on the page. So there was just so many different products, not just clothing, but you know, household items, things that I had never seen before. And they would offer descriptions of these items. And I would not say these descriptions are flowery, but I would say that it is a lot of words. And if you... If one is attracted to words and hasn't had the opportunity to read books, I think the Sears catalog is oddly a wonderful way to just learn about popular culture, because I was learning about what mattered to people, what they wanted to purchase, what their desires were, in a sense. Um, Everything that was being sold, somebody desired. Um, And it was a really interesting juxtaposition to the Bible. Obviously, it's a very different language in a commercial catalog versus a King James Bible. Because the language is the language of Shakespeare, basically, in a, a King James Bible. And it's, um, it takes a lot to kind of tease out meaning when this is not our current dialect. However, I would say that I understood the King James Bible better than I understood the Sears Catalog. And that is because that is the language I was raised with. The Sears Catalog taught me to um, think about language in a more conversational way. And then writing in the margins of the Sears catalog was a way to combine the poetry that I had from the Bible with everyday observations and putting them next to actually everyday items, I think was really a way to piece together that I was still in the world, even though we were being trained to live outside of it.
0: Each chapter of the book opens with a description of a particular plant or tree um, and takes us through the properties of it and how one might safely eat it or use it. The book is called Forager, and one of the things that you do is forage in nature. Do you want to talk about the particular plants that you chose to highlight? They were all very deliberately chosen um, and what your relationship was with them. Yes.
1: When I initially decided to use the plants as a way to structure the book, it was partly because I wanted to root the story in a sense of place. And I feel that the land that I was raised on was very much a part of my identity and part of the reason I had the sustenance to be able to leave a very patriarchal culture. When I was making that list, I used my mom's notes Um, I used some brochures and small booklets that she had made for the nature center that we lived near. I had never went on any of my mom's nature hikes. She never invited us. She did not allow us to see what she was doing. But she had donated all her materials to the camp um, that is still active up there where we grew up when she got sick. And so while she didn't give them directly to me, Before she died, I asked her if I could go up there and borrow some of them, and she was fine with that. When I got there, they gave me all of my mom's notes, and they asked me to return them when I was finished, and I looked through to see how she had noted the plants, and then I made a long list of the plants that The plants had to do two things. She had to have taught me something about them, but also I had to be able to remember and easily identify the properties of them. So even though I used her notes in the book, I also wanted to make sure that they were plants that were very memorable to me. So that that list probably got me down to 25 plants. And then from there, I looked for plants that had metaphorical, I felt metaphorical significance. And then if there was a plant that, or two or more plants that had in my opinion, similar metaphorical you know, uh, significance, then I just chose the one that I thought was most common in the region and the one that I used the most. And then I made my final list and I fit the chapters into the plants rather than the other way around. I started with the plants and then I thought, what sort of experience did I have that Um, this plant sort of rooted me in that experience. Now, that being said, when I was looking for the scenes that I was going to include in the book, I put them on, this is very old school, but I put them on index cards, um, scenes that I felt were relevant to my development um, as an independent free thinker, which the story takes, you know, a girl who was indoctrinated to believe a certain way and then takes her through the journey and takes the reader through the journey of her developing freedom of thought enough that she can make a decision for herself. And I went through those index cards. And again, just like I did with the plants, if there were scenes that served the same purpose as another scene, then I had to choose the one that I thought was most emblematic. And I think any writer, academic writers know this too, It we have to leave a lot out. And as a memoirist, your life is so much longer than you could possibly fit on a page, I felt that the framing of the story, deciding to really start it when we got to the mountain and end it when I left the mountain, other than the epilogue, really helped me think about what moves the story forward in those particular years and also which parts of the story are readers or listeners um, most likely to be able to identify with if they didn't have an experience like this. So like any of us, we have very very specific details of our childhood but the themes are universal we all go through i think coming of age and coming of age looks different but it's it's very similar in terms of pushback you know deciding what it is that we want to hold on to that our families give us and what it is that we want to leave behind and when i was using those plants i was thinking about while i no longer live on a mountain, um, specifically eating plants, I took that with me. And that was a gift. There were many things in my upbringing that I did not want to carry, that I carried unwillingly, I think through decades of my adult life. But the plants are something that I have willingly carried and have been a great source of comfort in my life.
0: Knowing which plants to use and even being able to tell the difference between different berries. At one point, a boy you know gives you some berries and you're surprised that he doesn't know that those are the wrong ones. You can't use them for the purpose that he said. Um, Knowing what they all are takes a, a lot of observation skills that you hone over the years as a child. Your survival depends on it. Your needs depend on it. But as you've been speaking, I'm thinking about how your craft of writing and journalism is one that relies on the power of observation and the details that we notice. How do you think the skills you developed as a child to survive have carried forward into your career?
1: What a wonderful observation. Yes, observation is probably my number one life hack. (laughs) like I feel that as a child, I learned, because I wasn't allowed to speak most of the time, I learned to camouflage myself so that I could stay in situations where I could eavesdrop is one way to put it. Um, I still love to do that. But I could be somewhere where I wasn't noticed and would not be asked to leave. And spending a lot of time, especially once I learned that I could write things down and write down pockets of conversation, many of which, by the way, I still have. So I took lots and lots of notes on the notebook paper that my aunt um, had given me and I tied together with red string. I, I locked them in a box that one of the men who live with us helped me build as a teenager and he had given me a lock. I lost the key to the lock as a teenager and I carried around this locked box to dozens of places that I lived um, during my late teens and, and my 20s and my 30s and my 40s. And it wasn't until I got serious about writing this book that I basically hammered, you know, I just I used lots of tools and asked for help to get this lock open and opened this box. And I found that I had saved hundreds of pages of notes from my childhood and it was a wonderful way to see the actual dialogue that I had written down. And it gave me the language of my youth to sit with. And while while the story that I wrote for not certainly not a transcription of those notes, it does use direct quotes from the notes. And as a journalist and really as a human being, I think the ability to sit with other people's experiences without the need to intervene is a wonderful way to get to know something outside of yourself from a perspective that is a little, at least a little less filtered through your own experience. When we call it objectivity, um, sometimes I think that most journalists now would say that we don't believe. I don't believe in objectivity, but I do no longer think it is one of the goals of journalism. Um, because we are subjects bringing um, a lens to any experience and the experience is always filtered through the lens of the person reporting the experience. But we still want to witness from a perspective of the most open mind that we can so that we can see details that others might not notice and those details might be very relevant to understanding the bigger picture and that is a skill that i absolutely honed from listening to conversations but also as you said noticing the difference the intricate and the nuanced differences between plants you really you really pay attention to multiple factors because those plants too look different in different seasons and so you have to understand them as an organism not you can't just take a picture and memorize it it is something that is changing and growing and life is very much like that and people even when they don't want to um, articulate only versions of the truth because that is all that they witnessed. And so you're always trying to piece together a changing and evolving story um, from the multiple lenses and perspectives of people who don't have access to the whole story. And that is very much like what plants are like on a mountain. They are reliant on each other. They're reliant on the weather conditions in any particular year. And um, as someone who consumes them if you don't know what it is you're consuming you put yourself at great risk
0: the role of nature is inextricable from the from the book itself and nature always has its own timing the the plants that you used in the book that open each chapter they're not universally available for use they have seasons when you can use them when it's safe, when they taste a certain way. And I'm struck by how a story is that way as well. It has its own timing when it's ready to be told, when it's when it's ripe, so to speak. Was there a particular thing that made the timing for the memoir? Yes,
1: there was. I want to put in perspective about the plants that, you know, our, our ancestors, Were foragers for probably two million years. Now, as Homo sapiens, we've only been foraging for approximately two hundred thousand to two hundred fifty thousand years. But these are so, 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 so astronomically more generations than we have spent as um, with agriculture and with basically controlling environments for most of human history, we did not control our environment. Instead, we lived within our environment. And so consuming plants and understanding them and understanding nuances is deeply, deeply embedded in our DNA. This is how we survived as a species. And so while I think the skills that I have might be uncommon now, they are certainly not uncommon for humans. Um, They are absolutely essential to um, how we evolved. And I say that to say that, yes, stories have also evolved and the way that we tell stories has, has evolved. But storytelling has been part also of our species since the beginning. And the way that we told stories to each other is the way that culture evolved. And also probably, according to social scientists, the way that we survived as a species because we needed to be able to share ideas and information and dangers and... Um, all sorts, including uh, forging details, but all sorts of ways um, in order to protect each other and to protect ourselves. So when, when I left this particular organization, I really buried a lot of my experiences, my memories, my feelings, um, and the language associated with that. I did not talk about it for a long time. When I was 25, I did write a version of a very different version of this book, but I wrote about my experience in a book and I wrote it very quickly. Like I did this one and it was called layaway. And I did have, um, actually it was penguin who was interested at the time. And I pulled away from that contract. I didn't sign it because at the time I really wanted to publish it as a novel, as something that was very non, like very fictional and very non-identifiable. And, at the time, nonfiction was just, I think, starting to become – memoirs were, were starting to become kind of – it was in the 90s, the mid-90s, and it – you know, I think publishing houses were interested in, in memoir, and I was not at all interested in um, putting – I didn't even want to publish it under my real name. And of course, things were just starting with the internet, and they were like, we, we are also buying a person, not just a story. And I said, no, you can't. I can't, I can't, like my family, everything, and I just shut down. And then I truly did not write anything about my family for the next 20 years. I just completely, completely moved into the academic realm and to writing other about other people and then helping, other, helping students tell their stories. I became a yoga teacher and I learned the language of bodies and how to move safely in bodies and how to help other people feel safe in their bodies. And it wasn't until... Well, it wasn't until 2020 that um, this, start, this story started to come to the forefront of my mind as being available to um, available to me to be able to translate. Because it feels, at the end of the day, that the girl who experienced this was finally ready to be seen, and I feel she gave me her story, and I wrote Forager in four months, cover to cover. I sat down and channeled the voice of the girl who experienced it. Now, that being said, I don't think I would have been able to listen to her and transcribe if I hadn't done the emotional work to be able to fully show up for her. And I also think that the storytelling devices that I have taught for so long helped me understand structure and um, the discipline to control a narrative. And so I think the combination of Understanding the craft and doing the emotional work to stay present for the child um, was a beautiful convergence, and the story just rose out of, of those two convergences. That also being said, I think that this story is ready to be understood in a wider community because there are so many of us now who are either inside of indoctrination or are witnessing indoctrination Um, with people that we love or care about, or sometimes even people we don't care about, but we hear people saying things that we think, how could they believe that? And so telling a story that shows how indoctrination comes from a place sometimes of um, real belief on the people who are indoctrinating others and sometimes cruelty, but sometimes there is a lot of victim victims becoming victimizers and what that relationship is and then also how much we have distanced ourselves from the earth and with covid these were questions of what does it mean to come back to the earth and to um rely on her wisdom as opposed to our domination with supply chains becoming more complex you need to stay on top of the latest logistics developments
0: In chapter 13, you said something that I wrote down. It really struck with me. It said, money is how I will leave someday. But as I was reading through the book and coming towards the end of it, I was thinking your connection with nature was the strongest, to me, most sustainable relationship that you had. And without your knowledge that you could forage, that you could take care of yourself. I wasn't sure even if you had money, if that would be enough to leave without the skills you developed as a forager.
1: Very astute reader you are. Yes, absolutely. When I said as a teenager that money is how I would leave, that's because that is what I believed would get me out. And I was doing many, many house cleaning jobs and trying to hide the money so my father wouldn't take it and just collecting as much of it as I could. Um, And that was my intent to leave, buying my way out. Of course, life is far more expensive than a teenage girl really understood, or or maybe they understand better now. I'm not sure, but I did not understand what it costs to live in, in the outside world. And so that is not ultimately what did get me out. It wasn't money, but it was absolutely the understanding that the earth and and my relationship with her meant that I could truly go anywhere and learn to thrive on what nature provided. I think I understood when I was leaving that I would not have access to the plants I grew up with, but I understood that it was possible for the earth to sustain me somehow. Um, and that really... in I feel that it was it was like a mother relationship and maybe I didn't completely understand but I tried to convey in the book that it was true whether I had the words for it or not is that the earth itself was mothering me in a way that my biological mother could not because of her own indoctrination. She could not give me the physical love or even the food that most mothers you know provide for their daughters. She wasn't able to provide those things for me but I had something that was larger that would continue to provide for me and maybe unwittingly i'm not sure my mother had given me all the tools to access that and i think that at, right before i left was when i started to experience that a little bit more in my body and thinking oh i do know how to do this i don't i don't need my mother to teach me anymore i i know how to find what i need on this earth and then i took that and translated it when I went to college to say, I know how to find what I need here. And it's gonna look different, but I know that it it exists and that I I can find what I need anywhere.
0: For people who have been encouraged or required to keep silent, who've got questions pushed so far down, they've filled up every part inside of them, going to college can be overwhelming and full of promise. How did your dive into books and literature um, help you, and were there times when it became too much? I would
1: say that it never felt like too much. I think I was so hungry for learning. Uh, I feel that some people say, now well how did you how did you know how to navigate college without a formal education? And I thought, honestly, I feel that I was more prepared to learn in college because I was so hungry for the knowledge and I didn't have a closed mind about what it was that was true or not true. I just knew that I didn't know. And not knowing is a wonderful kind of empty vessel to bring to education. And so from the very beginning, the the particular school I went to, I went to Pitzer College, which had um, begun in the 1960s as a very counterculture. When they first began, it was a women's college. It it had long ago, I think they only stayed women's for maybe five years, but they began as a women's college and they began as experiential and they didn't require any, at the beginning, any general ed or any major requirements. It was all self-paced and um, self-chosen. And so when I got there, they did require um, certain classes to complete your major, but they had no general ed requirements other than a certain amount of units. And so... What a gift for me because I could come in and I sat down with an advisor when I was 17 and I did not understand what I was looking at. But he pulled out the catalog and he said, Just choose things that you're interested in. And I had no idea what I was interested in. And I couldn't, I I just couldn't, I just couldn't even, I could read the catalog, but I could not understand what a class was in that kind of context. And I asked him to please explain it to me. And he said, Okay, well, tell me, like, if you look at this page, what words jump out at you? And I could definitely do that. And I was like, Oh, I, I love this. So I took theater and I took. Psychology. I took abnormal psychology. I was very interested in possibly understanding that there were some psychological factors in the community that I grew up in. And I took um, music appreciation. I took dance. I I just looked for things that I felt that I could maybe dive all the way in, I took a world history class. The class was called World History Through World Religions. And I looked at how history has developed through religion. And that class was just, obviously, um, right up my alley in the sense that I understood the way that culture developed from religion. And I want to say, I have not said this publicly, but I was a straight-A student, not because I cared about grades, but because I was so deeply committed To learning. And I was so deeply committed to understanding what it is that the outside worlds thrived on. And every single professor I had, it never occurred to me that would be such a thing as a poor professor. I was so, not poor um, in terms of money, but like somebody who was not good at what they were doing. That never occurred to me. All I knew is that every single one of them knew something that I didn't know. And I wanted to leave that class with that knowledge so by the time I finished college, I still was hungry. I had not yet been satiated and I went straight to graduate school. I had professors at my undergrad who sent me to help me figure out what the best graduate school would be for me. But when I started graduate school, I started teaching right away and I continued to teach college from the time I was 21. I, I started as a TA my first semester, but then I started working in another department with my own um, they were basically composition classes. They called it a university writing program and every student and the university of Colorado Boulder was required to take one of these classes. So we didn't use textbooks. That was part of the program is to not use textbooks. And so I was teaching how to write to mostly freshmen, sometimes sophomores from, I mean, I was the same age as they were really, um, maybe a year or two older, depending on, you know, how old the kids were. Sometimes they were seniors, they put off the requirement till the end. And I found that. Um, I could not get enough of it. I, I just couldn't. I, there was so much I still had to learn um, that I was fully in love with all of it. Um, and I think I still am.
0: Are you a person who has lots of books around you? <laughs> yes,
1: I do. I have stacks um, right next to me right now. I I have uh, so many bookshelves. I have books in every room. I find them wonderful companions, but I also really consider them my tools. I mark up every book that I get. I still prefer hard copies, not hard back specifically, but you know, hard copies as opposed to digital. And I love marking them up and cross referencing. And then I like sitting. I like to see the ideas sitting next to each other, viscerally. I like the relationship that one book has to another. Um, and I like to, just to visually be able to touch and see that also. And I think that when I think about all the people who spent years of their lives devoted to articulating ideas that are in these books, it's just, it feels like such a gift and, and, and such a wealth of knowledge that we are so privileged to have access to. So yes, I I always carry around a book, whatever I'm reading. I'm usually reading about four books at a time and I carry them in my backpack or um, just have them sitting on the front seat of my car so that I can never really find myself anywhere uh, without a book as backup in case I have to wait or you know in case I find myself with an extra two minutes, I have a book to read. Um, And it keeps me off my phone too.
0: What you were just describing about the crafts referencing and the way you handled all the books I saw in my mind when I was writing my dissertation and that that's how I did it. And I ended up, I had a table for working on my dissertation and then I went to a, like a paint your own pottery that was going out of business and bought a table. And then I dragged in the table from the front room, you know, the dining table it was not big or fancy. And I had all the tables because I had all the books open and cross referenced and sticky notes. And what you were saying earlier about using index cards to, um, uh, you know, diagram out your ideas. I've seen um, writers do that at, um, art retreats and fellowships I've been on, but it's also what I did when I was writing the dissertation. There's something lovely about the tactile part of dealing with ideas.
1: Yes. What a wonderful description. Thank you for sharing that, Christina. What was your dissertation on?
0: Um, The diaries that were written by 19th century New England farm women.
1: Oh, how wonderful to have the table be a part of that.
0: So when you were... Considering your book, you spoke earlier about craft and form and function. Were you also looking for a mentor text? I was wondering if you used um, nature guidebooks as a mentor text.
1: Yes, I did. Um, So my mom was on hospice when I was writing this and we thought she was going to die earlier than she did. She she died in 2022, but um, at the very beginning um, on January 2nd. And... I I felt that she was a resource um, at the end of her life she was comfortable talking about nature she was not comfortable talking about religion or any she never apologized for anything she did not want to talk about feelings but she would talk about um, ideas especially when it came to plants and animals and so I would bring up a topic and then I would ask her if I could use one of her books as references and so I I ended up, when she passed, I, I got all of her books because my siblings did not want any of them and my dad didn't want them. And so I have inherited them all. But even during the process of writing the book, she was comfortable with me borrowing the books. And so I had many nature books as mentor texts for for me, but they were my mother's books. And so I not only had the books themselves, but I had all her highlights, all her cross-references, all her posting notes and um, diagrams that she would write in the margins of the books. And so I was working with the texts themselves, but maybe more importantly, with her relationship with the texts. And that was um, really a gift to me.
0: In the book, we see you at many vulnerable points out in nature. And at one point when you're speaking with your brother, we learn that the moon Um, is a form of surveillance. Um, And as you were writing it, and especially when you get to the end in the epilogue, I was wondering if there was a reclaiming of your own relationship with nature from one of danger, of survival, of even surveillance to the appreciation that comes through so strongly now in your tone and your words.
1: Yes, I want to touch on an aspect of surveillance. Um, Since the book came out, there have been many former members of the field who have written to me um, or showed up at my book readings. And some of them I knew only just... When I was a very young child, so I knew who they were, but some of them had known me, they had known my parents and my grandparents before I was born. Um, Some of them remembered me when I was one or two years old, maybe up to age five. And they had very specific stories. And I started listening to their stories. But when they would speak, sometimes they would look around and we would be at a bookstore. And this has this happened multiple times. They said, I feel like they might have this bookstore bugged. Like they were so scared to talk still. And, and they're considerably older than I am. And they still feel that that somehow there are surveillance techniques in, in place. And when they would tell their story too of how they got excommunicated, um, there was just a woman yesterday telling me a story about this. And she said, to this day, I don't know how they found out. And there's so much of that in the language of a cult, I think, and so much in the ideology that I did feel that I don't think I thought they were microphones, but there was some sort of knowledge. It almost made nature animated, come alive, because it felt like my mother did have the ability to talk to the trees and, for example, the moon, or but just that the land itself would would hold my secrets until my mother spoke to the land, and in which case my secrets would be revealed. And so That is a really interesting and beautiful, um, it's, it's scary as a child, but to think that the land can hold stories is something that I never doubted. And now I feel that the stories aren't literal in the way, I mean, I'm not against anyone's belief systems, but for me, when I think of the stories the land holds, I think it isn't that they will tell the stories, it's that they are part of the stories. And that we, our stories are interwoven into the land. And I can no longer personally separate myself from the land I came from or the land I currently live on, that I am very rooted, but that my roots have, um, they have grown up with the land and that the land has been changed by my experience, that it is a very symbiotic relationship. And I think we are so often taught to dominate that we really think that we are not living on the earth. We, we, we pave it over, we put on concrete, we we live in houses, we do all these things. And, and I think so many of us are not aware that the earth itself still creates every single thing that we consume. I mean, whatever we create, we create from the elements of the earth so that the earth is always with
0: us. I was thinking about your, your day job. You work in higher ed, you, you write. Do you have times when you need to just go off and be in nature?
1: Yes, and I, I I do go to nature all the time. I have a commitment with myself that I will go deep into nature once a week. I'm very fortunate to live very close to um, a couple mountains. One, where my family and I, my, my family that I've created, not, not my family of origin, but we have um, several acres on a wilderness preserve, and so I can go there and um, tend to the land and we are very... Um, we are very committed to making sure all animals that come there are safe to be predator and prey on the land, but not, not, um, the prey of humans. And so I go there. Um, and I also, there's a, as a closer mountain here, um, Mount Baldy, that's only about 20 minute drive from my house. So I can go and hike pretty deep in a forest very quickly. And I, I do consider it part of my mental health to get into nature deeply at least once a week, but I also daily eat something off of the land. So I do grow and I say grow. I mean, I don't think I'm the one growing it, but I do steward um, just suburban land here that um, I do consume from just because it feels, again, part of my mental and spiritual and psychological health to to participate in, in the relationship between myself and nature daily. And I just don't always, I don't live deep in the forest, but I do um, make sure that I touch the earth. And I do walk barefoot on the earth every day, for sure. I make sure that I, even if it's grass, you know, that I do spend time feeling the earth with my feet. Um, It's very grounding.
0: When you were young and the Bible was pretty much the approved literature. You had a lot of questions about the girls in the Bible and the women in the Bible. And one in particular you were curious about was Tamar. When you were listing some of the classes, you took a deep dive in in college. Did you find someone to ask all those questions?
1: (laughs) You mean when I got to college? Yes. Oh, no. I did not talk about it in college whatsoever. Um, and even when I took world religions, it's interesting. I, I don't remember that he really discussed very many um, females. I mean, we weren't just looking at Judeo-Christianity, but I, I, it was it was very patriarchal it was an older man who probably really didn't know very much about women in all sorts of religious traditions. But in graduate school, I did do a minor in religious studies. And when I was getting my master's, I took women in uh, world religions. I took women in uh, Christian, what was her name? But I read a lot of Rosemary Radford Ruther and um, ecofeminists. And I learned the text of the Bible from the perspective of women. And I did that in a very formal way. You know, I studied that. So I did do that in graduate school. And then I became a little bit obsessed with um, understanding the way that my grandmother covertly, And I say this because she got Alzheimer's and I was not able to talk to her. She had Alzheimer's pretty actively by the time I was 19. And so she did not pass until I was in my 30s, but she was um, in a home and unable to have really any memories um, that that at least that I knew how to access. So, um, but I thought about the ways that she told me stories that our grandfather did not tell ever at the cult. And I wonder now, I wish I wish I could have asked her and I wish I could ask her now if she understood that she was giving us a tool or if she was giving me a tool. I think I spent a lot more time with her than my siblings because I was sick and I was often alone with her. And Tamar, I mean, I don't know if we pronounce it Tamar Temer, but we know who we're talking about. <laughs> she, what a fascinating character and what a powerful way to... Work within a system that she had no control over, um, but to her agency. For for listeners who don't know, I'll only be very brief. But she disguises herself as a prostitute and sleeps with her father in law and impregnates gets herself puts herself in a position, and she does indeed get pregnant from her father in law. And um, this is how she manages to not only stay in the family but to um, get the opportunity to have access to I wouldn't say owning land, but to um, being considered part of a family that she was denied access to um, when her husband died and her brother-in-law did not um, do his duty to impregnate her. And just tricking this man who would have stoned her for having a child outside of wedlock um, preserves her because it's his child. And just the forethought of that. And it made me really think about how does one work within a patriarchy and the patriarchy I was in was, I mean, we live in a patriarchal society anyway, but it was a much stricter um, version of it than um, contemporary like culture. Um, we, we do have more opportunities in the wider world than Tamar did or than I did as a child.
0: That section of the book really foreshadowed for me that you were going to have to leave the field and, they did excommunicate you when letters that you wrote were discovered. But I got the strong sense that you personally could not have managed to stay there too much longer. Correct. I
1: I think that I sort of set up, and I, I even as I was telling this story in the book, I, I tried to show that every time you think she's about to get out, she gets sucked back in again. You know, she's not really ready. And, and I think that... Um, I probably orchestrated my own final last straw excommunication, not consciously, but that I absolutely knew I could not stay. And I don't know that I had the courage at the time to remove myself without um, the distancing that disobeying their rules resulted in. So when I went to a movie with a college boy and I knew that there was no way anyone could give me a second chance after that. Um, it gave me the space, I think, to be able to say my goodbyes before I took off. And the goodbyes were not actually to other people, but they were internal, you know, like my way of becoming – of, of um, making peace with um, the, the choice to go and because I understood that I would never get that back. And I, I'll add here for, for our particular listeners, um, this is not something I talk a lot about, but it's very painful – Um, honestly, to lose everyone that you've ever known. But it's also been really interesting because my older sister, who's exactly a year older than I am, she stayed her whole life. And so the other girls that I was with um, and that are talked about in the book as well, the... For some reason, I'm forgetting her name because I had changed it. <laughs> but the girl who's – the Washington family who um, I, I stayed with and they had the food and then she was with me when um, right before um, I went in the ambulance because of the suicide attempt. And that – those girls, they're no longer girls, but they're still very close to my sister and they all still live communally to the boys that – or the men that we grew up with. They married them. They still – their children all grew up together. They are all still – Inextricably linked. And of the first nine leaders' kids that were born, I was the number, I was fourth of the first nine. And I mentioned the first nine because it was considered, you know, like a a baseball team that we were all really, really, really young together. And that was before my um, younger sister was even born. So nine of us were born in about a year and a half. And that was the very, very first children that they ever had born in this cult. And um, the other eight are all still there. So I really did lose and they, and they won't speak to me. And so I really did lose, um, you know, people who I really, really deeply loved. And I think that there is some, something beautiful about a community that stays together for decades. I mean, I, I don't wish I was there. I don't, I think that what they have, um, the restrictions they place, well, let me say it this way. It's, it's easier to go along and it's more comfortable to go along with a system, um, especially when it serves you, than it is to stand up for those has harmed. And I do think that the people who are there still really haven't been as harmed from the system as all the other people they trampled on to maintain what they consider as purity. And so I do not respect their choice, but I do understand it.
0: Because it's all or nothing. Yes. The book does lay that out—that there are chances that would seem like escape, but they aren't, and that leaving is a long process, and sometimes it's a back and forth process. It's not a clean break. Um, in the few minutes we have left, what do you, what do you hope this episode sparks for listeners? Hmm, I.
1: I really think that young people, and whether those are our students or other young people in our families or our communities, our neighborhoods, um, young people have truly been deprived for the most part of a relationship with the earth. And maybe not so young people have also been deprived. But if you um, and any others in your community spend time together in nature, The chances that you will deepen your relationship are very high. And I would put a call out to anyone, no matter where they live, to touch the earth that surrounds you, to physically put yourself in relationship. And whether that is growing a garden, you know, that's a little... Easier and safer than <laughs> finding edible plants, you know, that are growing wildly. Um, if you can get educated in eating um, wild plants, I think that's wonderful. But start by just planting an herb garden. Um, maybe if you don't have any land, you plant an herb garden in your kitchen. You plant, you take a potted plant, and you watch the herb grow, and then you eat off the herb, like while you're doing the dishes or something. You know, because that is that is eating of the earth. It's it's something that's coming straight out of the dirt, and you're forging a relationship between yourself and. Um, the earth that sustains us and also sharing it. So um, going on a hike, going um, anytime you have the opportunity to just take a walk in a park, sitting, um, instead of sitting on a blanket, sit on the earth, just, you know, to just remind yourself that this is, this is where we all come from and it is deeply rooted in our DNA. And whether it's looking at a sunset or um, the stars That there is a sense of reverence that um, we begin to develop when we notice, when we notice that the earth is still, it's still here and it's still taking care of us.
0: Thank you so much for being here today, Michelle Dowd, and telling us about your memoir, Forager, Field Notes for Surviving a Family Cult. I'm Dr. Christina Gessler, and you've been listening to The Academic Life. I hope you will please join us again.